We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners on whose land this podcast was produced and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We would also like to acknowledge the commitment and sacrifice of First Nations people in the preservation of country and culture. This was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Hello, I'm Skosha Monkovic. Welcome to Creative Responders, a monthly interview series from the Creative Recovery Network, where we hear from creative leaders, disaster management experts, artists and community members who are strengthening disaster planning through creativity. Today, I'm speaking with Vic McEwen, the artistic director and co-founder of The CAD Factory, an artist-led organisation whose work and practice aims to enrich broader conversations about the role that the arts can play within our communities. Vic is a leading practitioner in the field of socially engaged practice, and I was delighted to have the opportunity to speak with him about the principles that guide the projects of the CAD Factory, hear the details about some of their impactful work in community preparedness, and also discuss the leadership opportunities for arts organisations to navigate and facilitate complex and nuanced discussions around community issues. Please enjoy my conversation with Vic McEwen. Welcome to Creative Responders, Vic. So lovely to have you here. It's been a long time following your work. Um, Where are you joining us from today? Um, Today I'm in Sydney, the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, It's a big month of travel for me, so this is where you find me today. (laughs) Great. Yeah, I don't know if you've got the chills set in here. I'm on Mianjin. Uh, Brisbane and the Yagara Turrbal country I'm home today which is very nice but we've got those arctic wings coming through. Here as well it's cold everywhere I think. Um, You've been creating work for many years through your organisation the CAD factory and your projects are founded on practice of what uh, is called or you call socially engaged practice or socially engaged art work like how do you define social engaged arts Vic because there's a lots of different thinkings around what that is? What does the term mean to you and how does it inform your work as an idea or as a practice? Yeah, I think, you know, one of the important things about socially engaged art practice to me is the fact that it is hard to define, that people do have different ways that they go about this type of working. But for me at the moment, the way I'm really deeply thinking about it is that um, socially engaged arts practice is a meeting of aesthetics with ethics. And so in doing that, I'm trying to, you know, not forget the fact that we're artists just at the service of a community, but trying to understand the real strength that comes from remembering that we're artists and remembering that we're working with humans and the ethics and the art making that comes from that. So, yeah, really, I think for me at the moment, socially engaged arts practice is a meeting of aesthetics and ethics. It's an interesting term, ethics, so it's not necessarily something that we generally hear about in community conversations and I'm, it's often a term that's used in a very kind of structural way, like a, an ethics for research or something. Can you yeah. explain what you mean by that? Well, I think what I mean is when I am working with the community and as I'm sure we'll navigate during this conversation, you know, that could be in really diverse ways depending on how and what the project might be. And that, you know, how I understand it is that every step of those projects is kind of a meeting with ethics, you know. So we're trying to navigate when to instigate projects, how to instigate projects, who are the authors of the projects, what are the right processes to do, um, you know, when do we delve into really tough 
potentially traumatic topics, for example, and that all of these are kind of present, um, you know, kind of in every sort of step of the way in so, a lot of these projects. And so the, the idea of ethics is really something that we have to be agile about because we can't predefine it because we're working with people and these things emerge. Um, and so, you know, therefore, I, you know, I kind of say that ethics is something that is always present and always to be considered in these sort of socially engaged processes. It's interesting. We did some work creating well research and one of the things that we came up with, this is a research looking at um, the care for artists, really, I suppose, work, that work in the front line of communities. And it was very clear to us that there was a dearth of understanding of what you've just explained, like how do we have a kind of context of ethics and how do we understand it from an artistic perspective, but also as a duty of care for the communities that we're working with. And also how do we care for artists who are working on that front line of community engagement, particularly within a trauma context. And I know you're currently running an incubator program around professional development and mentorship for artists who are all wanting to work in this social engaged space and that some of these things I assume are being addressed in that program. Can you talk a bit about the program and how it's going so far? Yeah, sure. And maybe to lead into that, I'll say that, you know, you identifying this idea around care for artists. So, you know, I think about it as, you know, how do we care for artists who are caring for our communities? And I think that it's a it's a conversation that needs so much work at the moment, you know, given that we're caught this idea of creative responding, for example, or arts and health or the many different forms, you know, that we need to have some more rigorous conversations about how we care for these artists that we're calling upon in these sort of exactly, trauma yeah. field times. Um, you know, so one way that we're doing that as an organisation, and this being the CAD Factory, which is a small artist organisation I run with my partner, Sarah McEwen, and our project officer, Kimberly Beattie, and other people that come in and out of various projects. So we sort of identified over a number of years of running programs that, you know, we were coming across artists that were working in some way that you might think of as being socially engaged. And what all of those artists were speaking about was that they sort of, they're often, you know, not tied to institutions, for example. They're often out there on their own, defining their own path, which I think, you know, is another way to define some aspect of socially engaged practice. It's often artists defining a kind of new way of working. But these artists were all talking about the fact that they didn't have, for example, a community of practice, like the way the visual arts might have or dance might have. And so we thought, you know, given that this idea of socially engaged arts practice is where we're so deeply embedded, <laughs> you know, in our thinking as people and as artists um, in our professional and personal lives, that, you know, there was an opportunity for us to say, well, let's develop this community of practice. And so we went out and we sought funding from Create New South Wales, which we received, and now we're in our second year of, of running this program that's, you know, via application. And really it's for, at this point, it's for what we might call mid-career artists, so people who have some experience as socially engaged artists. And that's purposeful at this point because what we're doing is trying to bring everybody together to receive mentorship, yes, but also to come together to define some things and explore some things and to create some resources for other artists. So we really wanted to start with, you know, groups of artists that had questions in their practice, things that they were really needing to explore or answer or critique. So we could come together to sort of do that as a group. And so, yeah, we're in our second um, group of artists at the moment and it's, you know, it's fabulous, fascinating project and I think really valuable at this time. Yeah, it's interesting. Like we we talk about the arts as being a small family, but the possibility to sit and really uh, delve into 
how we think and how we operate is pretty rare, actually. And, you know, that community of practice is uh, something that, we, you know, we, we do rely so much on our peers, but there isn't necessarily a, there's a care there, but not necessarily an interrogation. And I think there's quite a difference. Yeah, and I think that's what we, you know, from the residences we have. So this usually takes a form of, you know, multi-day, maybe four-day residencies that we have um, throughout the year. And there, those that time is full of talking. It's full of conversation, structured conversation around particular issues. You know, we find that even though everybody's from different art forms and everyone's working in a really different way of socially engaged practice, that a lot of these issues are really common. You know, how do we manage relationships? How do we manage time? How do we manage expectations of non-arts partners? How do we deal with those ethics? How do we deal with trauma? And how do we not hurt ourselves while doing all of that? And so I think, you know, it's really because in our organisation, the CAD Factory, we spend a lot of time having these discussions amongst ourselves, discussing the reasons why we do this sort of work, how we do it. But what we discover is that not many people have those opportunities to do that. And really mm. what we're trying to do is to nurture practice through bringing people together to have these really valuable conversations through which all of us learn. So, mm. Well, it creates a deeper and richer sensibility of opportunity too, doesn't it, to share? Yeah, and it really speaks to that, you know, diversity but the common threads amongst all of these types of ways of working. Mm. Well, you've got quite a lot of prolific work through your CAD factory, Vic, and there's so many projects I'd like to discuss, but I'm particularly interested in some of the work you're doing around community preparedness and using arts-based methods to work closely with communities with very complex topics or topics that are most vital for us as a human species, really. Um, I know that you're doing some preparedness work with the communities in Falls Creek, and can you tell me a little about that work? Yeah, sure. So this is, you know, a fascinating project that started pre-COVID and so it's had a lot of impacts because of COVID, it being across the border in Victoria from where we're situated in New South Wales. So this project really came about from an independent report that the Falls Creek Management or the entire Alpines Management Committees commissioned into the potential effects of climate change on the ski seasons um, in the Victorian Alpine region. And so the, what came back from that independent report was the potential that within 10 years, so this report came in five years ago now, that the ski season could be reduced to only two weeks per year. Mm. And so that's really like astonishing information. And so one of, I think, the amazing things that the False Creek Management Committee did was to ask a question of themselves, how are we going to assist our permanent community in navigating this sort of information? You know, they decided that one of the ways to do that was potentially through the arts, and so they contacted us and we started having conversations. So, you know, initially it was led by their their understanding that there could be some value through the arts in this, which was fabulous because what eventuated was a project that was really about saying how do we take this information that's very practical, it's science-based information, you know, it's a prediction based on science, but also it's such abstract information for people. What does it mean to have no snow? So, you know, what I've discovered in going back and forth, you know, I don't come from a history of a snow-loving history. I don't ski or any of that sort of stuff. And even though I've been to Falls Creek a lot of times now, I've still never skied. I just enjoy being in the snow, working with people. <laughs> um, but, you know, so many of the permanent community there have relationships to that place through multiple generations. And so they've been there, you know, many of their ancestors are the founding people of the ski infrastructure there, for example. And then to the side of that, there's all of these animals that only exist 
there. You know, they're already you know, on the verge of extinction and these are one of their last habitats remaining. So what happens to all of them if, if we lose this, um, the current climate that sustains them? And a great example of that, or an extension of that really, is also the bogong moth, which it's yeah. a place where the bogong moth travels to around that region. And it's a meeting place of three different Aboriginal groups that would traditionally go there to hunt or to gather um, bogong moths. So it's a really complex series of questions. And what we discovered in this process is that, you know, the, the biggest issue I think that has arisen through this navigation has been the kind of the emotional barriers to understanding this information. And so, you know, when we began, you know, I started interviewing lots of older generation people in Falls Creek, for example, and meeting with them and talking with them and found, you know, a lot of resistance around climate change predictions. But then when we got down to those predictions, so often I would hear things like, well, it couldn't be true because there's always been snow here. Yeah, and so, you know, this isn't an Making sense of the unsensible. Yeah. It's a really hard thing to comprehend because this is the way it's always been and what do you mean? And so, mm. but then, you know, on the surface that comes across as some sort of climate denial, but when you dig deeper in, it's just about, and then, so this becomes the purpose of this project. It's a slow navigation of how do we deal with that? Of course, people have emotional sort of barriers to to this potential change, particularly when they're, you know, economic livelihood of Falls Creek is also relies on that on the climate there. And so, you know, the other thing is that all of those people in Falls Creek, it's all families. It's families that own the resorts. It's not large companies coming in from elsewhere for the majority of it. And so we're dealing with all these family and personal connections. So that's really the heart of what we're trying to navigate in that project. How do we try to prepare a community? How do we work with them through all of those conversations to try to prepare them for understanding for action and for response when when and if required well it's such the challenge of everyone isn't it how do we face uh you know unknown outcomes we know they're coming we just don't know yeah. really <laughs> what it is that they will be ha- or how they will be contextualized in the yeah. environment or in our lives and i suppose that's the principle of preparedness being ready and flexible so that we are able to be managing whatever comes to pass yeah and you know if, if this preparedness if we can be having some of those conversations about the why this is happening and you know the differences in opinions now rather than have, happening yeah. them when we're actually what our focus needs to be on is response is yeah. caring for each other through that response you know it also just makes for a more efficient response you mm. know we're also talking about efficiency here for people Mm. Uh, there's something about the language i think that's interesting when you say what is the why because you know in the disaster context there is still a kind of escalation of language around impacts of climate and you know mm. understandably because they are big and they're getting bigger but that we there is a sense that we need to de-escalate that so that we can see it as a a curious challenge rather than something that shifts us into that flight fright and kind of immovable space. So to have those questions that soften the realities but give us a context that they're manageable in some form. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's a big part of a conversation we've been having at the CAD factory in terms of this and other topics, you know, is around how do we take some of the edge off some of these Mm. ways of communication, some of the language we use so that we can do what we should be doing, which is sitting together and talking through sometimes 
differences of opinions or perspectives, but without that sort of tension or, or violence, you know, without that sort of intensity. That well, some sense that we are in, in a collective conversation rather than on different ends of a of an opinion. Yeah, and that these different perspectives can actually inform each other. They can be a value to each other rather than a conflict uh, mm. of each other. And I think that's, you know, that's an underlying thread, I think, of a lot of our projects that are even not necessarily about disaster as such, but are around different community traumas or things that we become engaged in. It's how do we navigate these differences of opinions, differences of responses without that sort of, you know, violence or aggression or Mm, some some sense of humanity. It's interesting because it it, it is, and every time I uh, explore projects like yours, um, because you know, understand that that space of culture and the space of aesthetic engagement is a a place to where you know there's an opportunity to kind of neutralize those huge emotions that we have to unpack, not neutralize them, but give the a sort of a a holding space that we can come <clears throat> together around, and you know that the. the the challenge, the key challenge of the future is how how do we collaborate together in a way that still retains dignity and care when, uh, you know, things are on the front line and we have to <laughs> be dealing with pretty uh, harsh realities. Yeah, and I think, you know, one of the things that I think is the important the important aspects of the work that you do and the work that the CAD Factory does and other organisations is, you know, there can still be a hostility around the presence of the arts in these in these places. You know, we're doing the work of providing the evidence and the processes and the things that can be shared, the case studies to talk about, well, you know, here are the examples, you know, so we don't have to, so we can work through the sort of the hostility that can even <laughs> exist about the arts being a method that we're using yeah. out with communities. And so yeah. I think, you know, that's that's sort of where I feel we still sit um, mm. in many ways. We're still navigating that stuff. Mm. Well, an- another project you've been deeply involved in, which is around the fish kill instance in the Darling River and around um, Menindee in western New South Wales, which is a, a catastrophic environment event that uh, mm. this is another project that brings together these very complex environmental, cultural and community issues. And uh, I'm really interested in how the CAD factory has taken a real leadership role in this process. And so it's, as you were saying, that the arts can actually step into a place of bringing together various organisations and stakeholders around really vital issues. Can, can you talk about the origin of that project and some of the main aspects of the work that you're doing there because it's I believe it's ongoing isn't it the relationship it is yeah and I, I think it's you know it does speak to as you were sort of alluding to there the sort of agility that can come from arts organization I think that if it wasn't for the agility um, our ability to be agile that, that none of this kind of would have eventuated so you know as listeners will Remember, in 2019, I think it was the first fish kill event that happened in Magnindy, which saw an estimated one million dead fish appear on the banks of the of the Barker River there, or the Darling River, um, around the Menindee Lakes. And so, Menindee is about eight eight and a half hours um, away from Narandra, where our organisation is based. But the link between these two places came in the Department of Primary Industries, which has a fisheries in Narandra. And they were charged with the task of going to Manindi and jumping in the water and doing a type of fish rescue that never done before, which was to collect large old Murray cod that were sick but still alive and to get them out of the water and bring them back to Mirandra to heal and then to breed, you know, more than 60,000 or 80,000 fish to then release back into the river. Um, 
the day after that happened, we met with Matt McClellan, who was one of the scientists leading that fish rescue event. And he was, you know, deeply traumatised by the experience. And as he related it to us, that when he was there, that the banks were, you know, filled with Barkindji elders and community members who were supportive of Matt's presence and what he was doing, but they were weeping. And they were weeping for the state of the river. They were weeping for, you know, what it means for culture to have the river in that condition. And so he was there with his team and they were trying to manage these fish in the water, physically lifting them with their hands. And it was a deep trauma for him. So at the same time, we had been having conversations with the Clontarf Academy in Narandra, which is a, a program run around the country um, for Indigenous boys. It's Aboriginal-led. And we'd been talking to them about potentially working together. And so quite quickly, this idea around acknowledging that these fish were being taken from Barkindji country to Wiradjuri country is a different country. It's a different cultural place. And so, you know, we started thinking about the making of space for that within the Department of Primary Industries. So that was acknowledged within the way this sort of industrialised response was happening through removal and breeding and then placing back. And so, you know, through Matt, the Narendra Fisheries is really open to sort of opening up this process. And so we would go with the Clontarf boys every week to help breed these fish, to do health checks on them. Um, the Barkindji elders were, you know, in contact with us throughout that whole time. And then when they were ready, we, tra- we all travelled together up to Menindi to release, for the Clontarf boys to hand over these fish from the Radri community back to um, the Barkindji people and for them to then do a fish release together. And it was a really kind of astonishing experience in that, you know, the elders after we released the fish would say that, you know, the fish now have to start their journey up the river. So all the Clontarf boys jumped into the water to help swim with the fish, to help sort of provoke them to move. And so then what we do did was to create a show on the banks back in the in the round on the Murrumbidgee that told this whole story. We invited the Barkindji elders down and, you know, hundreds of community came to sort of share in this story of what was really about the arts, science and ancient knowledges all coming together around this unfolding event that was happening to understand how we explore different knowledge systems about how to manage something like this, how we deal with the emotional aspect and how we deal with the cultural aspect of of what the fish kill meant for the community up in Barkindji country. And so that was, you know, <clears throat> such a meaningful and moving experience for everybody involved, lots of tears, lots of... Um, you know, just sort of sharing the fact that even though the, the subject matter of this show that we made on the river was traumatic, that actually what people were experiencing was care, was the idea of care and people coming together to sort of care through that. It's interesting because, um, you know, often in these spaces, the idea of having to be emotional is uh, squashed. You know, we don't have a capacity in science or in disaster management ever to address the fact that emotions are involved, that there is grief and grieving and that trauma is about grieving and that the systems don't necessarily have a place for us to be able to acknowledge that let alone hold it and to see that the value of the sharing of it creates a stronger bond and creates a different capacity for us to be able to think about the future in any kind of positive light. So, again, a powerful value uh, of kind of arts aesthetic container. Yeah. 
And I think you know that was some of the conversations we would have directly with the Department of Primary Industries of you know how do we allow room for emotion within science? Mm. How do we allow room for the grieving, as you mentioned? Um, because we can't remove one aspect of it. We can't just remove the breeding process and say, well, this is how we're going to fix it because we have a lot of things to heal. And mm. um, let's try and do them all at the same time. <laughs> you yeah. know, let's bring these things together. It's interesting that, um, you know, I trying to follow these kind of science processes and often it's surprising but actually not that you there's a lot of scientists that I know in this field that turn to poetry because they just can't find the ways to language their process as scientists let alone to be able to explain it within a bigger world context and so poetry is a way to be able to give some meaning um, some way of articulating that emotional Wait. And I think, you know, that's what we've experienced with Matt McClellan, so, you know, the person from the fisheries who's led this response. And, you know, he won't mind me talking about this. You know, he was deeply traumatised by his experience. And I would say my perception is there isn't much space for him in the workplace to work through that, to talk through that, to share that with colleagues. But through this project, he was able to do that. The first day that the fish, the Clontarf boys and the Cad Factory went to the fisheries for the breeding, we they've got a little theatre there, and so we we had little presentations um, where we talked about and showed pictures of projects we've done. But Matt got up and talked about the fish kill event, and during that process, he we had to stop for about five minutes because he burst into tears. We started crying, and so you know we allowed space for that to happen, and then we continued presentation but at the end of the day one of the leaders of the Clontarf Academy came up and sort of gave Matt a hug and said to him you know that I just want to thank you for showing allowing yourself to show that much emotion in front of these boys Mm. because you're teaching these boys that this is what we have to navigate in the world that Mm. this sort of emotion is part of our journey and by holding it up front by not hiding it we're learning to deal with it and so this became a real thing because then these boys started saying we have to care for Matt because he's come back with some sort of something bad from his experience so they did things like you know in secret painted him this beautiful painting of a Murray cod and gifted it to him at the end of the project as a way to heal him you know so this care then started being enacted by these boys on on Matt you know because of what and you know fabulous sort of outcomes that emerge when you set up the right conditions I think so many rich relationships there, Vic, in that work and um, such care taken. What's the next step with this process for you and for that community? What's happened since then is that a month ago there was another fish kill event. And so, you know, this one, of course, had slightly less media attention, but it's yes. actually worse than the first one. And so, you know, what we're in the process of doing at the moment is having a really quick response to to this because as an organisation we immediately thought uh, what can we need to do something to care for this community back in Manindi and so we spoke to the elders there we spoke to community and to the fisheries and to the National Museum of Australia who we've worked with a number of times and really in the in the you know time frame of just a couple of weeks have raised money developed a schedule and now we're working towards an outcome on the banks of the Manind- on the Darling River uh, the Barker River um, on June the 2nd this year. And so, again, I think it's that way that through an agile arts organisation, we were able to gather everybody together really quickly. We were able to maybe for the first time in this kind of way say, 
you need to pay for this to happen. Last time we went and raised arts money, but we don't have time this time. We need the financial investment to come through. And everybody just agreed to that straight away. It was astonishing mm. how kind of quickly that it came. And I think that that's because of the benefits that these partners have seen in the work we've done in the mm. past. So they, under, they don't need to question it. They understand from their perspective the benefits are, are worth that financial investment. Yeah, so again, the deep investment in relationships that make such a process more efficient. So what, yeah. what is the work that, what, is, what will be happening in June? So on June the 2nd, we tie, the reason for that date is because the fisheries have agreed to give us 10,000 silver perch to release back into the river. And that's the last date it can happen due to, it'll be too cold after that. And so we're going to develop what we're just calling a show at the moment, um, on the cold banks in June of the on the river it there. It's freezing, won't it? But, um, you know, we're hoping that parks are coming on board and there'll be lots of fire pits and fire gathered. So we're going to make a warm environment in the cold. Um, and there'll be, you know, welcomes. There'll be work made with fire projections across the water, performance. That's really, again, the fisheries will be there. So Matt will be there taking a centre space with the elders, with the community, with the fish um, and with the arts to say, this is what we're doing now. We've come back together again. Um, and this is about providing care for the people here who are the really the, this place is the focus of this big national, you know, this has national implications for us, uh, continuing fish kill events. And so we're, again, through the arts saying, let's bring all of these aspects together to help heal, to help explore, and to share knowledge systems as well, I think. Well, such a beautiful example of leadership. And again, I think there's something about maybe coming from that context and arts context you kind of depoliticize a process which enables people or, or different partners to jump in and, and be part of something that otherwise could be quite challenging yeah i think so and i think from our perspective you know i really enjoy when we're bringing very different viewpoints together because mm. i think that's one of the things that i'm really interested in and as it's at the heart of so many of these difficult discussions is how do we um make less volatile these different opinions and actually sit in conversation and explore and value our difference to actually get to something. And that's not just a, a lovely idea. We're trying to enact that. We're trying to sit with these different positions to try to work through things through the arts um, for the benefit of everybody that sits around that table. Mm. So, again, it's the key challenge of if we take it back to the kind of disaster context, it's a key challenge for us into the future that there are so many different players in this space and one of the challenges currently is to be able to come around that table as you say with a sense that everyone has a voice and again how do yeah. we as kind of artists in our own communities and artists in the world with a, a kind of context of wanting to see positive change step up to be able to open those safe places for those really complex conversations to be had like what what yeah. do you see that would be useful to support more of this integ integration of the arts in these processes or how would it what do you see as key things that will help us as artists and creatives in our communities to be able to take on that leadership that's so vital right now or well, always has been yeah, well, vital but more so seemingly yeah it's, it's certainly more present you know it's more mm. present in our discussions this idea of artists playing this role i think you know it's it like all things, it has to be a multifaceted series of things that come together to assist us. So one of them is ideas such as the case incubator. This, you know, what we're finding is happening through the case incubator is the artists that go through this program together with us 
leave or they reflect at the end that they have a much greater sense of being able to articulate their purpose and the way they work and why they work. And I think that's a really important step. What I find, many years ago, I think I made the observation that the resistance you sometimes encounter from non-arts partners, whether that's health, primary industries, wherever, is so we see that as just a resistance to the arts, but it's actually you know, a resistance to just the fact they haven't had exposure to this as a concept. Mm. And the stronger we get in articulating ourselves, showing evidence, but also coming across as, as though we know what we're doing, even if we still have such an open-ended process that's emergent and relational that we're finding what we're doing, really goes a long way to, to bringing those partners around. And so I think we develop that through things like the case incubator, things like the work that you're doing in terms of training and case studies and trying to develop this field um, because it's also legitimising it as an area of, as a way that people work together as a form of making that deserves a community of practice, you mm. know, because there is one rather than just this really spread out divergent thing that, that happens because we're, you know, Sarah um, from the CAD factory often likes to talk about how she thinks we're deinstitutionalized in terms of our working methods, even though we go in and work with institutions so much. Um, but because we can enjoy that sort of agility that the CAD factory has and we can respond faster, you know, that, that's much more difficult when you start working with institutions or government departments mm. or that sort of thing. Um, so I think it's, you know, learning ways to articulate the strength that comes from that agility is a really important thing to be doing. So at the moment, I think they're the immediate things that we need to be doing is nurturing our community, learning how to have better and more confident language around what we're doing as we're stepping into these sort of new emergent areas. Yeah, so kind of deepen the strategy of our narrative, isn't it? Like we're, you know, we that's our skills. <laughs> we uh, need to kind yeah. of up the ante a bit, like what's the, what's the better narrative that we're telling so that we can have some sense of, place and authority in these bigger conversations yeah because i think if we don't believe it you know how can we convince others to believe yeah. it so i think that getting that greater sense of you know just understanding and believing in in what we're doing mm. is a really important step at the moment mm. yes indeed so um what about yourself in terms of your own sense as an artist where do you see um, you know, I know you're doing your PhD currently to kind of understand practice more specifically or artic do you create your own articulation uh, in terms of the CAD factory where you, you know, you've got a lot of projects on at the moment, but where do you think you're kind of heading with it all? Well, I think, you know, there's not much separation between me and the CAD factory. I think we're all just sort of, you know, yes. people <laughs> and the organisation at the same time. So, you know, my, my PhD, which is due in 51 days, is, you know, I'm the first ever artist to be accepted oh, into a Oh, the deadline, my goodness. It's, yeah, but I made time for you, Scotia, today. Thank you. <laughs> um, pleasure. <laughs> I don't know anyone out there who's done their PhD. I'm sure they all must be sweating on your behalf. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. I'm actually, well, even though I've had extreme existential crisis along the way, I'm really enjoying the way, because I'm, you know, positioning it within health, so I'm enrolled in health as an artist, so I'm trying to maintain my position as an artist in this faculty of medicine and health. It's really, it's, it's doing something really great for my practice and my process, which is, as I've been saying, learning to articulate and learning to articulate with confidence because the research is there, the bodies of work are there, we see these. And also what's just as important, we feel the outcomes mm. of these things out mm. in our communities. 
And so I think, you know, I see that the CAD factory is really interested in, you know, leadership around this area of socially engaged practice. As we hear this more and more, one of my fears, and it's just a little fear, is that, you know, if institution that as the idea of socially engaged practice, you know, takes a stronger hold within contemporary arts, that in as this sort of field is developed, it's really important that the voice of artists who have been making work in this way for a long time is there. Mm. As we mm. start trying to define or even build frameworks or whatever people might attempt to do. And so I think, you know, really what we're trying to do, and it's the case incubator is the start of this, and where our next step is developing a case incubator studio, so a place of research and uh, community of practice building around social engaged practice to help, you know, sort of lead and not just lead so we're at the the front of that, but to nurture that Mm. um, community of practice for social engaged practice and also contribute to how it's being defined, how it's being valued. Um, Yeah, and it's true, like, to remember the voice of our elders in a way because, you know, there has been such a long heritage in Australia around this work and it's been called different things at different times, but there's a kind of been a thread of really deeply... um, strengthened work that we you know I certainly have built my my practice on and I'm so deeply grateful for those yeah elders yeah because it's it's a knowledge that sort of got us to this point and you know now it's being developed in new new and emergent ways and yeah well thank you for your time Vic and sharing your work with us as I said at the beginning it's always been such a pleasure to kind of follow what you're doing and looking forward to engaging much more and particularly in that beautiful sense of nurturing our artists and the possibility of this work in the future and particularly the the strong need for leadership which um, it's so great to hear you talking about so where can people find you if they'd like to know more about what you and the CAD factory and your projects are well, there's a CAD Factory webpage, um, cadfactory.com.au, and that's, you know, great. We try to maintain quite a good archive of projects, which we started because a lot of our work was in remote regional locations, and we thought, well, if we don't archive it, you know, the city-based arts institutions won't know about this type of work. That's or others right. that are here <laughs> won't know about this type of work. So documentation yeah. became essential. Uh, but now it's it's great looking back at it because it's it's helping us to to understand our story and our journey and what we are as an artist because we started as musicians and, you know, slowly these changes just happen. Mm. And so we're still on a really big journey in terms of our individual practice and how that informs the CAD factory and how we work and how we want to work in the future. So the webpage is sort of great for that, for that reason, I think. Thanks so much, Vic. Well, good luck with that 52 days. And uh, look forward to reading. Thank you, 51 days. 51. (laughs) And counting. I'll send you a copy. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Cheers, Vic. Thanks very much. Thanks for joining me for Creative Responders in Conversation. We'll link to the CAD Factory in our show notes, and you can also find their work alongside a range of others in our newly refreshed library of case studies on our website. You can find us at www.creativerecovery.net.au. That's also where you can find our latest news, resources and all of our past podcasts and transcripts for each episode. This podcast is produced by me and my Creative Recovery Network colleague, Jill Robson. Our sound engineer is Tiffany DeMack and the Creative Responders theme is composed by Mikey Squire. Thanks for listening. <laughs>